All right, so I think we're in our fifth Sunday, looking at Luke 15, these powerful parables about being lost and found, but particularly the parable of the lost sons. Today, we look at the overall meta story of this parable that is an illustration of what is arguably the primary story of the Bible, and that story is about exile and homecoming. It's a little odd reference to support a sermon, but uh, the 20th century philosopher Martin Heidegger referred to a characteristic that all of us demonstrated, and he called it umheimlichkeit. It means homesickness, to be alienated, a feeling that we're just not at home in this world, that we live in a world that is profoundly at odds with our deepest desires that there is something missing. Why is that the case? And secondly, what can we do about it? We find the answers in this beautiful parable of Jesus. So let's turn there once again. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed his pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will sit out and go back to my father. And and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. And so he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quickly, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put our ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry, refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes and comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost 
and is found. This parable describes the basic meta story of Scripture to us. We're breaking it down into three things that we're going to cover today. First is the idea of our universal homelessness. Second is God's invitation home, what God has done to remedy that homelessness. And the third area is the celebration that's at the end of that homecoming, the party. So the first is our universal homelessness. The book of Genesis, of course, talks about our origins. It tells us essentially that we were made, we were created for the garden of God. That was home. Home is best defined as a place that fits you, fits your deepest desires and needs, where you can be your true self. You see, the garden of God was where Scripture teaches we were meant to be. God's infinite beauty satisfied our beauty sensors that are deep in all of our souls. The work that God gave us in the garden satisfied the creative capacity of our hearts. The counsel of God satisfied the farthest reaches of our minds. And the love of God satisfied our infinite need for love and affirmation. When we were home, God's garden. But the same thing happened to our race as happened to the lost son. We chafed under the authority of the Father. We said, I want to live life my way. And so because of that, like the Son, our decisions leave us alienated from the Father, in exile, away from home, and starving. What Jesus is helping us all understand is that we are all wandering in a world that doesn't fit us, doesn't meet our deepest needs, leaving us hungry for something. You know, that's not how the world wants to paint our life. How many of you remember The Lion King? It's recently come out in 3D. Opens up with this big, beautiful song, The Circle of Life. Later on, the younger lion says to the father, well, well, father, don't we eat the antelopes? (laughs) You talk about a circle. I see sort of a, a pyramid that we're on top. We're on top of the food chain. Isn't that more what it's like? And the father says to them, oh, but son, you don't understand. You see, someday we will die, and we will become fertilizer. <laughs> and the fertilizer will feed the grass, and the antelope will eat the grass. And so, yes, we eat the antelope, but the antelope eat us. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> don't you just want to sing about that? You see, any world where everybody that you love turns into fertilizer and where you turn into fertilizer is not a world in which our hearts and souls can be at rest. Inside all of us, we have this sense that we're not home. There's something beyond for us than mere fertilizer. Why is this the case? Why do we feel this way? C.S. Lewis talks about this. In his book, Mere Christianity, he talks about that sense of incompleteness that finds its way even into the best of life's experiences when he says this, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, 
no learning can ever really satisfy. I'm not speaking of what could ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or unsuccessful vacations or careers. I am speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing, which eventually fades away in reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife. The hotels and the scenery may have been excellent. And chemistry may be a very interesting job. But something has evaded us. I I think he gets at it very well. Even those experiences in this life where we begin to feel, where we taste home, in the end, they only hint at, they only touch, and they don't satisfy our deepest longings. And that's why we find ourselves years later looking at someone that we love and say, you don't meet my needs. And we end marriages. We end relationships, careers. We walk away from many things feeling like somehow they have failed. No, they could never have succeeded at meeting needs that are deeper than the mere human experience can meet. They are meant to be a meaningful part of a broader life. And when we count on them to complete us, to fill our deepest needs, it's just not fair to any of those circumstances. It's not fair to any spouse. You know that Jerry Maguire thing where he looks at Renee Zellweger? And who wouldn't look at her and say, you complete me? Hogwash. Yes, we're meant to love people in this life and have lifelong relationships, but there is something that none of those things, no career, no relationship, no success in life can fully meet. C.S. Lewis in another book, Weight of Glory, says, in the end, even our best experiences become the scent of a flower we have not yet found, the echo of a tune we have never really heard, news from a country we have not yet visited. What is it that they are talking about? Keller, in the sermons and in the book we're studying during this series, describes a memory trace of the collective unconscious of our race. Somewhere remotely in all of us, we remember the garden. We remember life at the feet of God. We remember what it was like to be innocent, to be perfectly satisfied. To be in God's presence, like fish to water, so our hearts are created for the presence of God. That's where we are home. So what is it that we're supposed to do about it? What solution can we find to this homelessness? And the whole idea of the Bible, as illustrated in this parable, is that God has provided a way home along with an invitation and an open door. Now, some more liberally-minded people in the broad Christian umbrella look at this parable and say that it actually presents an idea of how to find God that is different than our traditional historic views in Christianity. What they suggest is that this parable has the son being forgiven and being restored back into the family without what we refer to as atonement. So the suggestion is that Jesus did not teach the cross. He didn't teach the need for a redemptive act that would take the punishment on our behalf. And if you were to approach this parable that way, you would be desperately wrong. Remember the context. We have sitting before Jesus 
both the younger brother and the elder brother, the self-indulgent and the self-righteous, the irreligious and the religious. They are both before Jesus. And they're listening to three stories. Remember, this is the third of a sequence. And remember that in each of the previous stories, the sheep and the coin, the one who has lost them goes out to find them. We've been in this a few weeks now, so you you have a glimpse as to why the third story goes differently. But if you were just coming at this for the first time, you would see either a mistake in the plot or an intentional turn in the third parable. Because when the youngest son goes out, no one chases after him. No one sets aside everything that they have at their own expense to go out and do whatever it takes to find them, which in fact is the very theme of the first two parables. It's glaringly intentional. Why doesn't anybody go out after the younger son? You see, in this culture, there was the primogenitor, the law of the eldest heir. And anybody listening to this parable would have known that the person in the family who should have gone out after that younger son was the elder brother, the primogenitor. The reason why the older brother got most of the inheritance wasn't just because he was privileged or that he had first place. You see, what passed on to him was the responsibility to hold the family intact, to continue to produce goods that would care for the whole family. That's why he got the chief portion. It would have been his job to keep the family united. It was the elder brother who had the responsibility to go out. And here's the second thing. He would have to do it at his own expense. 2,000 years separated from this culture and its ideas, we miss the fact that everyone else listening understood, and that is the father couldn't possibly have brought his younger son home except at the expense of his older son. That's the key to this whole story, as it is the key to the meta story, the the primary story of Scripture. I, I forget the author and the book, but some years ago, he writes a true story about a family during the Vietnam War era that had lost their younger son. He was missing in action. They tried everything they could to find out what had happened to their son. They had no answer, no death notice, no prisoner of war notice. And finally, the older brother gets on a plane and in the middle, in the height of the war, flies into Vietnam and goes into the battle zone to look for his brother. It's a profound story. He is never harmed in that whole search. I don't even remember if he found the brother. But the point of the story is the going of the older brother at his own expense. And as he searched through all of this battle zone, he was never harmed because both sides understood his mission. There was this great respect for him. He became known simply as the brother. That's what we all need. We all need a true older brother who understands his role at his own expense to go and bring back the prodigal. Those of us who are lost to the family and need to find our way home. Now, here here is the key to this story. In order to help bring this point home, 
in Jesus' story, the tragedy is that the younger brother happened to have, for an elder brother, a Pharisee. And because of the way the Pharisee thought, it was no obligation to him. In fact, it was his obligation to condemn those who were lost. See, the problem with the Pharisee mindset is that it carried with it not a sense of grace, but a sense of justice. Not an understanding that all of us are undeserving of God's love, but a notion that some of us can be deserving if we're good enough. And if we are deserving, then others are undeserving of God's grace, and in fact, are deserving of God's judgment. You could not be a Pharisee and be a true older brother. So in the story, the younger son has a Pharisee for an older brother. But in our story, we have Jesus. Think about the words of Jesus himself. The Son of Man has come to do what? To seek and to save what was lost. What did he do? He left the side of his Father in heaven, and he came into the battle zone for the hearts of men. And he came at his own great expense to seek and to save what was lost. Who did Jesus refer to those who followed him as? Except his brothers. And when he spoke about his life, did he not speak about one who was living away from his home? The foxes have holes, the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. You see, here's the key. We have a true older brother. It's Jesus Christ. And at great expense, he allowed himself to be humbled. He was totally stripped of his clothes, hung on a cross for us, and paid completely the debt that we owed. And why did he do it? So he could bring us home. Home. So what is the main way that we can respond to this? Well, I think for some, there's that perpetual call of Scripture. Today is the day of rescuing. Today is the day of salvation. There's that constant call that goes out to those of us that deep inside know our homesickness, know our separation from God. Whether we are the younger brother who are just living according to our own priorities, or whether we are sincerely religious people like the elder brother who are trying hard to be deserving. Inside, we recognize lostness and homelessness. And a loving God calls us home, calls us to come and respond through the grace of the Father and the sacrifice of the Son and come through the Son back home to the Father. The first response must always be to invite those of you who feel that waywardness, feel that homelessness, to invite you home, to even now as you sit there resolve that Christ has paid a way for you, that even though you are in debt to God and therefore alienated from him, Christ has made a way. He has paid that debt, and you need to come as the younger son did, simply repent and turn to the Father. There's no mistake that the father refers to the younger son as one who was once dead and is now alive. That's what the Bible refers to when it talks about eternal life, new birth, new life in Christ. That, that's the first thing. But as Christians, what is the main way that we respond 
to this work of God. Well, in the story, the way we're supposed to live our lives once we come home to the Father is characterized by the one thing we all do when we have a homecoming. What's the primary way we celebrate when everybody comes home for the holidays? What? We eat. Why do we do that? The meal is the pivotal experience of family. The meal is where we feel most like we're back home, right? This Thursday, how many college students are going to be back home? We've got one coming home. We're going to go get her Tuesday. She's going to spend the weekend with us. And when we gather around the table, there will be a sense of homecoming, a celebration. But you see, those family meals, in the old world, in the time of Christ, the family meal was the entire activity of the evening. Everybody came home from work, the meal was prepared, and then they basically stayed around the table till evening. It was more than food that they fed on. You see, a meal, a celebration like that, feeds both our appetites physically, but also our hearts, feeds our souls feeds our emotions. And that's why there's no mistaking that when the Bible talks about the ultimate celebration of the ultimate homecoming, talks about it as a feast. I want you to turn with me to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 25. I'm going to begin reading at verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. And in that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trust in him. He saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. When the Bible describes the celebration of our ultimate homecoming, it describes a glorious feast that will satisfy all of our longings. Heaven A lot of people wonder what heaven's going to be like, and the thought of it being a perpetual church service is what keeps a lot of people from being excited about going there. And I got to tell you, I totally get that. Think about those times around tables with family and friends when you had a taste of the well-being, the times when you most closely felt like, I'm home. And now multiply it to its state of perfection, and that's the homecoming that awaits you and me. That is the true Thanksgiving dinner. Everything on this side of heaven is just rehearsal. A glimpse, it's a sampling of a meal we have yet to eat. Let me ask you this as we think about that. What kind of people, if, if we really got this down, if we understood what awaits us, what kind of people would we be? If we could almost feel the Father's arms and his kiss, if we could almost taste the meal that satisfies all desires, what kind of people could we be if that was so real to us now? We would be a people at perfect peace. We would have a a relentless hope 
that no circumstances could destroy. We would embrace all of the good experiences here as a foretaste of what's coming and learn to celebrate what we have in our relationships and what we have in our opportunities rather than cry out for what we don't have. We would find more satisfaction in what the glorious God has given us right now because we would know what we have right now is simply the appetizers. I think we would be a people, as Paul describes, who are those who let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts richly, and we would be thankful, Colossians chapter 3. The question we have to ask is, how do we get there? Is it possible that we can live our lives that close, that in touch to the future feast of God? Yeah, I, I think we can. How do we do that? I think Jesus gave us a way. You know, this is one of those moments where you, you start pulling in other events of Jesus' teaching in life. Once you've seen the body of, of a parable like this and you go, oh, yes, now I see it more fully. What was it that Jesus gave his disciples in order to keep us close, smelling, tasting, anticipating the ultimate homecoming feast? What is it? Yeah. We call it, listen to it, the Lord's Supper. And when he gave it to us, he said, remember me. The reason why Christ gave us the Lord's Supper is not that in itself it has any redemptive force or supernatural power. It's that it is the rehearsal. It is the reminder of the greater feast to come. It is what continues to build our hope, to celebrate our union with the Father through Christ. And he did it as an addendum to the Passover feast which before the cross was Israel's way of celebrating the deliverance and redemption of God through the sacrifice of the Lamb. Generations later, John the Baptist would see Jesus coming, who is the Christ, and who would he declare him to be? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Once Jesus, partway through his ministry, finally gets his disciples to profess and understand, we get it, we know who you are, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Once the people in his inner circles finally got who he was, he began to teach them immediately why he had come. I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. And that they didn't get. You are the Christ, Son of the living God. They, they like that part. They didn't get the death part. But on the night he was betrayed, Jesus gave them the one thing that would remind them forever and ever that it was the central purpose for his coming. I wonder how much they understood in that night. I, I suspect not much. They were still arguing about who was going to sit on the right hand and left of his kingdom. They were still in the afterglow of the triumphal entry. I, I think they missed it altogether. But I'm certain at some point after they went back and went, oh, yeah. Just like we need to do. So that the Lord's table does not become just an empty sacrifice, but it becomes a reminder of the meta story, exile and homecoming. His body broken, his blood shed. This precious gift that Jesus gave all of his followers for all time until he returns. It's a remedy to our homelessness. It's a reminder that we have come home to the Father, and it's a rehearsal. <laughs> for the feast of eternity. 
This morning I was preparing the sermon and I found myself moved to goosebumps when I looked on my little calendar. We're not exactly high church here, but out of some sense of religious duty or something, one of my subscriptions is not just holidays, but Christian holidays. And so I, on my calendar, have the high church's calendar. You know what today is? Anybody? I got goosebumps. It's the feast of Christ the King. We have a true elder brother who came at great expense to pay the price and to bring us home to the Father. And I love that we can celebrate that, as Jesus said, as often as we eat and drink this cup. And even though it's not the first Sunday of the month, our little tradition about communion, being non-traditionalists as we are, is it not entirely appropriate that today we celebrate that feast together? And so as we close this sermon, we're going to have communion together. I'm going to ask you to prepare by bowing your heads and tuning your hearts to the message that God has given us today. And I want to suggest perhaps some things that ought to happen in hearts and spirits here in preparation for the Lord's table. My hope would be first and foremost that there would be those here who there's a lostness that needs to be restored. There's a homecoming for you. Today can be the day that you do that. You can simply there release yourself from your desire to run your life and just surrender to the love of God and the work of Christ as your Savior and Lord. You can do that right now. And then in coming to the elements, you're celebrating as a child of God now what he did on the cross for you. And for the rest of us, I suspect that there is something about how we are so distracted still. We have become children of God through our faith in him. We've made that transition. We are still caught in longing for the things of this world to meet needs that only our, our communion with God can meet. And we need to get a closer sense. We need to move emotionally, spiritually closer to that great feast that awaits us. We need to live in the confidence of what God has provided now in anticipation of that. As you come to the Lord's table, come home again. Lord, as we come to your table, what a tremendous gift. And this day, as we've, again, in your words, seen this great story of our, of our lostness, our, our homelessness, and yet your relentless pursuit of us to bring us home. We celebrate that, and we thank you for this great gift that reminds us of the remedy of our lostness, but also is a rehearsal of the great feast that will come. Father, as we feast today on the bread and the cup, may we feel and touch home. In Jesus' name, amen.